So last week, we looked at Judges chapter 13. And you may remember Judges chapter 13 was this this brilliant passage on, on parenting. And if you recall, we saw Manoah, the father of Samson. He finds out that he's going to have a son. And immediately he begins to seek the Lord. He goes to the Lord and he asks for wisdom. He goes to the Lord and he asks him what his plan is for Samson's life. He asks the Lord how he can best facilitate God's plan for Samson's life. You know, how he can prepare Samson for the life that the Lord has before him. And, um, and we talked about how that was such a great example for us as parents. And not only for us as parents, but also for, I think I use the term, kid-adjacent people, right? If you're around kids, <coughs> maybe you're not the parent, but you're a grandparent, or you're an aunt, or an uncle, or you're involved in kids' lives. We need to be going before the Lord and asking the Lord what he would have us do, how we can speak truth into the lives of the kids around us. Because, man, they need it, right? I mean, the kids of our, this generation, they're desperate for the touch of God in their lives. And the Lord wants to use each one of us to make an impact and to speak truth into their lives. We, we were encouraged to just seek the Lord on how we might do that. This week, we're gonna continue on, <coughs> excuse me, and we'll be looking at Judges chapter 14 and 15. And we're gonna begin to sort of delve a little deeper into the life of Samson. And we're gonna see some shortcomings in the lives of Samson's parents but we're also, as we begin to look at Samson, we're going to start to see sort of the, the unraveling of his life, the beginning of the end of his, of, his, of his ministry. And one thing that we see when we look at Samson, Samson is a picture of, of unrealized potential, right? And, and for me personally, there are few things that are more frustrating than seeing a person who is gifted, who is talented, right? Who has great potential. It's so frustrating to see people like that who have, excuse me, all these God-given abilities and to take those things and to just squander them. When I look at people like that, I think, man, if I had that, I would, you know, dot, 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 dot. Isn't it frustrating when you see people that are so blessed by God and they just squander their gifts? Even more so when they're spiritual gifts and it's a spiritual calling and people squander those things. We pick up the text in chapter 14, verse one. It says, Samson went down to Timnah. Then he came up, somebody said, "Uh oh, that's right. Uh Uh-oh, trouble. Then he came up and told his father and mother, I saw one of the daughters of the Philistines at Timnah. Now get her for me as my wife. But his father and mother said to him, is there not a woman from among the daughters of your relatives or among all our people that you must go and take a wife from the uncircumcised Philistines? But Samson said to his father, get her for me, for she is right in my eyes. 
So we see here, Samson goes down to Timnah. Now, Timnah was a Philistine city. Now, remember at this point, the Philistines were the enemies of Israel. And more than just the enemies of Israel, the Philistines were, they were the oppressors of Israel. At this point, the Israelites, they had been under the heel of the Philistines for for some six decades, somewhere in that area. Remember in the opening verses of chapter 13, when the angel of the Lord came to announce the birth of Samson, it notes that Israel had been under Philistine rule for about 40 years. And as we get into the text, we're going to see that Samson is at least old enough to get married. So late teens, early 20s. So 40 plus 20 is 60. <clears throat> right? So we're somewhere around 60-ish years of Philistine oppression. So Samson... He goes down to Timnah. Now, Samson really has no business going to Timnah. He has no business there at all. And you might not be aware of this principle, but I found it to be true in my life and through observation. Young men do stupid stuff. It's sort of a principle in life, isn't it? I think most of us who are, who are growing older can look back and say, yes. The young men here are like, what are you talking about? You will. You'll get it eventually. Young men do stupid stuff. And so <coughs> Samson, he's off exploring. He's off looking around. But he's really somewhere that he had no business being, right? He didn't belong in the city of the enemy of God's people. He didn't belong in the city of his oppressors. And while he's there, it says that he saw one of the daughters of the Philistines. And what happened? He was smitten by her. Remember growing up watching cartoons? I think of like Looney Tunes. You know, Bugs Bunny, he'd just be sitting there minding his own business, just kind of chilling. And then all of a sudden, some disturbingly sultry female rabbit walks by, shaking her hips and all that. And what would happen with Bugs Bunny? What would his eyes be like? Or his heart would be, you know, you'd see this, <coughs> this whole thing going on. That's how I imagine Samson at this point. He's a young, dumb kid hanging out in the wrong area. And he sees this woman. And he runs home. He says, Mom, Dad, guess what? I found who I'm going to marry. And his parents are like, all right, cool. <clears throat> Did you finally go over to Bethlehem and meet that Hadassah girl we were telling you about? Or is it Ruth, the Danite? And he says, no, no, Mom, she's from Timnah. She's a Philistine girl. Now go get her as my wife. It's a pretty bold statement, isn't it? The other night, Denise and I, we were laying in bed watching the TV. And as happens so often, our girls come down and they end up in bed with us. And we're just kind of chilling. And the bathroom light was on. And Hannah looks at me and she said, Dad, I told you, go turn off the light. 
No, she says, I said, Dad, I said, go turn off the light. Like she's the boss. Like she's the one ruling the roost. And I said, I said, what? I said, you are not the boss, little lady. You don't talk to daddy like that. It doesn't seem like anybody ever told Samson that, right? Or maybe they did and he's just a slow learner. But one thing we do see is that Samson is a man who was ruled by the flesh. He's a man who was ruled by his fleshly desires and his fleshly carnal appetites. And so he says, Dad, I found my wife. I found this girl. Now go get her for me. Now remember, marriages in that time in that culture were mostly prearranged things. They were things arranged by the parents. And so Manoah says, listen, isn't there a woman from your own culture that you can marry? What about Deborah? Remember that Jael girl we met? How about Rachel from across the street? You know, can't, can't, you, can't you hook up with one of your, your own countrymen? How about that girl Naomi that we met at the potluck? Manoah says, you know, we, we're not supposed to marry outside of the family of God. Son, you're, you're not supposed to marry an unbeliever. And Samson, he wouldn't hear any of it. He says, I want her. You don't understand that. She's, she's the one. Now, bear in mind at this point, there's no indication that Samson had ever even talked to her. Right? He's only seen her. Maybe, maybe shared a flirtatious smile or something. But he says, dad, get her. She is right in my own eyes. He says, dad, I don't care what you say. I don't care what God says. I don't care what the pastor says. I don't care about any of those things. I don't care what scripture teaches. She's right in my eyes and I'm gonna do what I want to do. Now listen, church, that's the core issue, isn't it? Samson wanted to do what Samson wanted to do. And I think that so often, that's our issue as well, isn't it? We want to do what we want to do. In fact, I think that's why so many people reject God and re reject scriptures, reject God's authority in their lives because they don't want anybody else telling them what to do. It's not the idea of the existence of God that upsets people. It's being in subjection to God that upsets people because they're, if somebody else is in authority over them, they're not in authority over their own lives. If there's a God, that means that they're not God, right? And that's the issue that a lot of people have. Verse four, his father and mother did not know that it was from the Lord, for he was seeking an opportunity against the Philistines. At that time, the Philistines ruled over Israel. So this is an interesting verse. <coughs> 
It says that mom and dad didn't realize that this was from the Lord. Now, don't make the mistake of thinking that this verse is saying that the Lord caused this to happen. Don't think this verse is saying that God forced Samson to sin. Right? That's not the case. Rather, God, being omniscient, being all-knowing, was aware of what Samson was going to do. And he had to plan to use that. God had a purpose in the things that Samson was about to do. Now, I don't want to go down the whole rabbit hole of the sovereignty of God versus the free will of man. And I'll just leave it at this. Samson had a choice. Samson could have obeyed the law. And I believe that had he obeyed the law, God would have used him differently. And God would have used him to a greater extent. But Samson did what Samson wanted to do. And the Lord said, okay, I am going to allow this to happen and I'm going to use it to accomplish my plans and my purposes. The Lord says, I'm going to use Samson's poor decisions to bring about a conflict with the Philistines so that I can begin to bring judgment upon them so I can begin to set the Israelites free from their oppression. Now, this also doesn't let Manoah off the hook, right? Manoah, the father, he should have made a stand. Manoah should have stood up to Samson and said, look, Samson, you're your own man. Don't do this thing. But if you're going to do it, your mom and I, we're not going to have any part in it. We're not going to be accessories to your disobedience to God. But he didn't do it. They went along with, with Samson. Then Samson went down with his father and mother to Timnah. And they came to the vineyards of Timnah. And behold, a young lion came towards him, roaring. Then the spirit of the Lord rushed upon him. And although he had nothing in his hand, he tore the lion in pieces as one tears a young goat. But he did not tell his father or his mother what he had done. So Samson and Manoah and his wife, they, they head on down to Timnah, right? They're going to see if they can arrange this wedding, wedding between, between Samson and this young lady. And as they're on the road, they're passing by these vineyards. And what happens? This lion jumps out of the bushes and goes to attack Samson. And it says that the spirit of the Lord rushed upon Samson. Now, we've noted before that in the Old Testament, the Old Testament saints, the Old Testament believers, they weren't indwelled with the Holy Spirit in the same way that we are. As you know, in Acts chapter 1 and Acts chapter 2, sort of the inception of the church, right there at Pentecost, the Holy Spirit came and he fell upon the church. And from that point on, every believer has the Holy Spirit permanently indwelling them. But that wasn't the case in the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit would often 
come upon the people of God for a specific time and for a specific purpose. And there was a specific empowering that came with that. But once that event was over, the Holy Spirit would leave and then would come back again later if necessary. And so that's what happened here. The Spirit came upon Samson and it says that Samson grabbed the lion and tore it apart as young, one would tear apart a young goat. Now, <clears throat> I've never torn apart a young goat, so I'm not sure exactly what this looks like, but it seems like a bloody thing. But look, it notes that it was a secret and that he didn't tell his mom and dad. Now, this is interesting to me. Scripture notes that it happened in the vineyard of Timnah. And it's interesting because remember last week, we saw that Samson was a Nazarite from birth. And because this Nazarite vow that Samson had upon his life, Samson had no business being in a vineyard. Remember, because of his Nazarite vow, Samson was supposed to steer clear of wine and of grape juice and of grapes and even raisins, right? He was, he was supposed to have nothing to do with the vine. And we can kind of infer that this took place out of the presence of his parents because Samson was out of sight in the vineyard. Well, why would Samson be out of sight in the vineyard on the way to Timnah? I don't know, but again, young men do stupid things. He's probably out in the vineyard, hiding from mom and dad, snacking on the grapes, right? Breaking his vow. And that's going to be significant in a little while. And so I just want you to kind of remember that. And as we begin to talk about Samson and, and, and the, the things that he did, the mighty feats that he accomplished, you know, you, you probably you probably, a lot of people in their minds imagine Samson as sort of this giant, jacked dude, right? This big old mountain of a man. A lot of times we imagine Samson as a, as a young Arnold, right? With the flowing locks of Fabio, right? This is sort of the, <clears throat> the picture that we have of him. And I don't think that that fits the narrative. When I imagine Samson, I think of him about a buck 25 soaking wet, right? He's a skinny little scrawny kid in my mind with a voice that cracks and a little bit of acne, right? He's, he's not the picture of strength. And, um, because I think that if he, if he was, if he was, you know, Arnold, and he's doing all these great feats, people would look at him and say, well, of course he's having victory. I mean, look at him. Look at how massive he is. Of course he's experiencing these great victories. But in my mind, remember, remember the first Captain America movie? Remember before he got the injection, the, the serum? how small and scrawny and skinny he was. That's kind of how I imagine Samson to be here. A small, skinny kid with a poor physique. And I think the Lord 
used Samson purposely so that there would be no question who was doing the work. As I said, if it was Samson who was this big, strong, buff guy, Samson might get the credit. And the Lord didn't want anybody else getting the credit, so I think he chose to use this small, scrawny kid. And it kind of reiterates that principle that Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, and verse 27. It says, But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. That's so often how God works, isn't it? He, he works in ways, he works in the lives of people in such a way that it's obvious who's the one doing the work. Then he went down and talked with the woman and she was right in Samson's eyes. So Samson goes down and he talks to the woman and it seems like this is the first time they've actually engaged in conversation here. And you can imagine the scene, right? She's batting her eyelashes a little bit. She's smiling. And Samson, again, he's smitten. And it says that she was right in Samson's eyes. She was what Samson wanted. And as the text develops, we're going to see that Samson turns out to be a, a pretty shallow guy. There's not a lot of depth to him. He gets caught up by a pretty face and a couple nice compliments. And he abandons the Lord's commandment. He abandons the Lord's plan and will for his life. After some days, he returned to take her. And he turned aside to see the carcass of the lion. And behold, there's a swarm of bees in the body of the lion and honey. He scraped it out with his hands and went on, eating it as he went. I don't know if that's disturbing to you guys. <laughs> but he did not tell them that he had scraped the honey from the carcass of a lion. <clears throat> yes. Ooh. So, apparently Manoah came to some kind of an arrangement with this girl's daddy. And the day came for the marriage. And so they head back down to Timnah. And on the way, Samson spots that vineyard where he killed the lion. And he says, you know what? I'm going to go back there and I'm going to check that out. I'm going to see what's going on with that dead lion. And again, we see that mom and dad didn't know the situation, right? Samson sneaks away. He takes a peek at the carcass. And remember, Samson is a Nazarite. So one of the things was Nazarites weren't supposed to partake of the fruit of the vine. And the other thing was they weren't supposed to touch dead bodies. Samson's in a vineyard scraping honey out of the carcass of a lion. He's over two right now, right? Not doing well. He sees that the bees have Nate made this nest, takes the body, or takes the honey, eats it, gives it to his mom and dad. It's gross, a little deceptive on his part. And then they move on. His father went down to the woman and Samson prepared a feast there. For the young men used to do so. 
As soon as the people saw him, they brought 30 companions to be with him. So Samson and company here, they get close to the bride's house. And Samson begins to prepare for this wedding feast. And these wedding feasts, they would take place for between seven and 10 days in that culture. Now, apparently, Samson didn't have any groomsmen with him. And we don't know if maybe Samson didn't have any friends or maybe he did have friends and he invited them to the wedding and they're like, are you insane? You want to go into Philistine territory? You want to marry a Philistine girl? You know, that's, a, that's a hard pass. We're out. We're not going to do that. And so the bride's family rounds up 30 friends and we'll see it's definitely a friends in quotation marks there. 30 friends for Samson. And Samson says to his new buddies, let me now put a riddle to you. If you can tell me what it is within seven days of the feast and find out, then I will give you 30 linen garments and 30 changes of clothes. But if you cannot tell me what it is, then you shall give me 30 linen garments and 30 changes of clothes. And they said to him, put your riddle that we may hear it. And he said to them, out of the eater came something to eat. Out of the strong came something sweet. And in three days, they could not solve the riddle. Now, this is a ridiculous riddle, isn't it? It's a stupid riddle. <clears throat> Samson says, look, I'm going to tell you a riddle. And if you can figure it out in seven days, I'm going to give you all a brand new pair of underwear and a new outfit. Now, that doesn't seem like that big of a deal to us. Right? I mean, I, I'm kind of a bargain shopper. I can go down to Ross, and for 20 bucks, if I hit the clearance rack, I can get a new pair of underwear, a new pair of pants, and a new shirt, right? Multiply that by 30, that's like 600 bucks. It doesn't seem like that big of a deal. But in those days, clothes were very expensive. And that time frame, <coughs> textiles were, were very time-consuming to manufacture. And so most people in that culture, they would have had two sets of clothes, maybe three if they were doing well in life. They would have their everyday clothes and they would have their fancy clothes, right? Their Sunday best. They would have clothes that they would wear to weddings and to festivals and things like that. And so this, this bet that Samson makes, this proposition, it would have been very expensive. And so he, he makes his bet with them and they say, okay, we'll take you on your bet. What's, what's your riddle? And Samson says, out of the eater came something to eat. Out of the strong came something sweet. Now, here's why this is so stupid. It isn't really a riddle at all, is it? Right, there's no possible way that they could have known what Samson was talking about. 
You know, when you give a riddle to somebody, usually if they, if they think abstractly, you know, and kind of ponder it, they can figure out the riddle. But this was an impossible riddle to figure out. It reminds me a little bit of, um, of uh, Bilbo and Smeagol. Remember when they're in the cave there in the Misty Mountain and they're having their little riddle off back and forth with the riddles. And then old Smeagol, remember, he gets impatient. And remember, he yells at uh, Bilbo, ask me a question. And Bilbo says, okay, I'll ask you a question. What's in my pocket? Right? And of course, there's no way poor Gollum could have answered that because he didn't know what was in his pocket. He had no frame of reference. There's no way he could have thought through that. In the same way here, right, there's no way that these Philistine men could have understood what Samson was talking about. And in three days, it says, they could not solve the riddle. On the fourth day, they said to Samson's wife, entice your husband to tell us what the riddle is, lest we burn you and your father's house with fire. Have you invited us here to impoverish us? Right? These are great friends, aren't they? They go to the wife. They say, why did you bring us here? Was it just to make us poor? Did you bring us here just to trick us? Go and get your husband to tell us the answer to this stupid riddle. And if you don't, we're going to burn you alive, along with your family and your house. And Samson's wife wept over him and said, you only hate me. You do not love me. You have put a riddle to my people and you have not told me what it is. And he said to her, behold, I have not told my father or mother and I should tell you. Samson's wife, and it seems like it's more his fiance at this point, Right, they're at the wedding feast, but the wedding hasn't been completed yet. They haven't consummated the marriage. And she comes and says, Samson, why do you hate me so much? You, you don't love me at all. If you really loved me, you would tell me the answer to this riddle. And he says, woman, I didn't even tell my mom and dad. You think I'm going to tell you? Now, it seems like at this point, they could have used a little premarital counseling. They could have used a little help. And look what it says in verse 17. She wept before him the seven days that their feast lasted. And on the seventh day, he told her, because she pressed him hard, then he told the riddle to her people. For the next week, she wept and wept and nagged and nagged and just picked at him. And she finally wore him down. I like how the, the King James translates it. He told her because she lay sore upon him. Until finally he's okay. He gave in and he tells her. Now, his fiance, she had no real loyalty to him. She wasn't in love with him. She didn't even know him. 
right? This whole marriage outside of, of Samson's attraction, Samson's lust, this whole thing was mostly a financial agreement. And because while she may have liked a good barbecue, she didn't want to be barbecue, right? she promptly goes and tells the answer to these other guys. And the men of the city said to him on the seventh day before the sun went down, verse 18, what is sweeter than honey? What is stronger than a lion? See, they had this inside source. So they got the answer to this impossible riddle. And they say to Samson, well, nothing is sweeter than honey. And you know, around here, there's not much stronger than a lion. That must be the answer. And it says that Samson was furious. And he said to them, if you, if you had not plowed with my heifer, you would not have found out my riddle. This is a sweet dude. A real sweetheart here. Now, fellas, next month is Valentine's Day. Just a word of pastoral advice. Don't refer to your wife as a heifer. It's not going to go well for you. And the spirit of the Lord rushed upon him. And he went down to Ashkelon and struck down 30 men of the town and took their spoil and gave the garments to those who had told the riddle. And hot anger, he went back to his father's house. Now, in the history of wedding receptions, this doesn't rate high, does it? <clears throat> this isn't what every little girl dreams of for her wedding day. But it's interesting, as we talked about, right? God wasn't causing this nonsense to happen. He didn't make Samson do these things. But when Samson set his course, God empowered him for God's own purposes. He, in a sense, he's redeeming Samson's choices. He knew it was gonna happen and he uses it for his own purposes. God uses Samson's poor judgment and his ill temper to begin to set the people free from the oppression of the Philistines. And so Samson, he goes down to Ashkelon, about 30 miles away, and know what he does. He kills 30 guys. He strips them naked. And he brings those bloody clothes back to his 30 buddies at the wedding. And then it says that his anger was hot. And what does he do? He runs back to mama. He goes back home. And verse 20 notes, and Samson's wife, was given to his companion, who had been his best man. After some days, chapter 15, verse 1, at the time of the wheat harvest, Samson went to visit his wife with a young goat. Because of course, that's what you... <laughs> and he said, I will go into my wife in the chamber. But her father would not allow him to go in. And her father said, I really thought that you utterly hated her. 
So I gave her to your companion. Is not her younger sister far more beautiful than she? Please take her instead. So Samson, as 14 closes out, he gets mad and he takes his ball home, so to speak, right? Later on, he cools off and he heads back to his bride's house and he wants to consummate the marriage. And he doesn't bring her chocolate. He doesn't bring her flowers, but he brings a nice baby goat. And he says, here you go. And I assume that that was culturally appropriate in that day. And so the dad says, well, that's a nice kid. It's a nice looking baby goat. But the way you behaved, I thought that you hated her. And you know, we had this whole feast going on. Everybody was here. We already had the food cooked. So I gave my daughter to your best man. He says, oh, but don't stress. Don't worry. She has a little sister. And he says, the little sister is way hotter. That's in the Hebrew, by the way. It says hot. It's not. He says, she can be your wife instead. And Samson said to them, this time I shall be innocent in regard to the Philistines when I do them harm. So Samson went and caught 300 foxes and took torches and he turned them tail to tail and put a torch between each pair of tails. And when he had set fire to the torches, he let the foxes go into the standing grain of the Philistines and set fire to the stacked grain and the standing grain as well as the olive orchards. Samson says, okay, what I'm about to do, you brought this upon yourself. And by the way, that's a, a super lame excuse to behave poorly, isn't it? It wasn't my fault. You made me mad. You made me do it, Samson says. And he goes out and he catches 300 foxes. Now, the original language there in the Hebrew, it's not exactly clear. It's, the word there for foxes is sort of a, a generic term. It could be jackals or some other kind of related animal. But regardless of what exact animal it is, PETA would be upset by what happens next, right? He takes these 300 foxes or jackals or whatever they are, and he divides them into pairs. And then he takes a rope and he ties their tails together. And then he attaches a torch to the pair of foxes and he lights them on fire. Now remember, this is going on in Israel. And Israel is very much a high desert, right? It's very arid, right? It's very dry. And it notes that the, 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 the grain is already cut, it's harvested, and it's stacked, it's out drying. And so Samson, he takes these pairs of burning foxes and he lets them go in the fields. And all of their harvests burn up. Their grain, their vineyards, their orchards, they're all <coughs> consumed with fire. And the Philistines in verse six say, who has done this? And they said, Samson, the son-in-law of the Timonite, 
because he has taken his wife and given her to his companion. And the Philistines came up and burned her and her father with fire. So this investigation ensues and they discover Samson was responsible. And they discover it was because Samson's wife had been given to someone else. So they go up to his ex-fiance's house and they catch her and they catch her dad and they burn them alive. And Samson said to them, verse seven, if this is what you do, I swear, I will be avenged on you. And after that, I will quit. And he struck them hip and thigh with a great blow. And he went down and stayed in the cleft of the rock of Atem. So Samson says, all right, fellas, I'm going to avenge myself and then I'll be done. I'm going to avenge myself and then I'll leave you in peace. And this begins to start this little conflict. And in verse nine, the Philistines come and they, and, and they, they come to town looking for Samson. And, and this whole battalion of soldiers arrive and the men of Judah say, look, we don't want you guys marching into our land. We don't want trouble. Let us handle it. We'll go get Samson and we'll bring him back to you. There's no need to get crazy, guys. And then 3,000 men of Judah gather together and they go and they find Samson. And they say, Samson, what's going on, brother? Why, why are you poking the bear? Why are you causing trouble? And you guys have buddies like that growing up, always poking the bear, always, always the one to cause trouble. <clears throat> they say, why are you stirring up trouble? Look, we're sorry. We don't want to do this. You're our brother. But we have to turn you over to the Philistines, right? They're our bosses. You didn't leave us a choice. And in verse 12, Samson says, look, if you guys promise, I'm going to go peaceably. And they say, okay, we promise. And so they tie Samson up. And Samson and these 3,000 soldiers, they march back to Lehi, and Samson is turned over to the enemy. They give Samson over to the Philistines. About this time, it says in verse 15, the spirit of the Lord comes upon Samson. And Samson just kind of flexes. And the ropes break. And it says it was like flax caught in a fire. You ever take a little piece of thread or string and, and dangle it over a flame? What happens? It just dissolves, right? That's what's described here. And then it says that Samson picks up the jawbone of a donkey and he goes to work. He kills a thousand Philistines. And then he sits down and writes a poem. Because what else would you do after killing a thousand men with the jawbone of an ass? And Samson writes in verse 16, with the jawbone of a donkey, heaps upon heaps. With the jawbone of a donkey, I have struck down a thousand men. And as soon as he had finished speaking, he threw away the jawbone out of his hand. And that place was called Ramath Lehi. 
Now, this little poem is sort of a pun. It's sort of a play on words in the Hebrew. The word for donkey is hemor, and the word for heaps is hemora. And so he's kind of making a little pun that doesn't really make sense to our, <coughs> to our English-speaking ears. And he was very thirsty, and he called upon the Lord and said, You have granted this great salvation by the hand of your servant. And shall I now die of thirst and fall into the hands of the uncircumcised? He's kind of a baby, isn't he? He says, did you give me this great victory only to let me die of thirst out here in the wilderness? Right, Samson, it seems like he's, it seems like he's a little bipolar. Super high highs and super low lows. It reminds me a little bit of Exodus chapter 14. Remember in Exodus chapter 14, Moses has led the people out of Egypt, right? There's already been the 10 plagues. The Red Sea is parted. All these great miracles are taking place. The Lord is, is working on behalf of his people. Great things are happening. And they hit a little bit of a rough patch. And there's not enough food. And there's not enough water. <clears throat> and do you remember what the people say to Moses? Was there not enough graves in Egypt? You had to bring us out into the wilderness to die. That's sort of the attitude that Samson has here. And verse 19. And God split open the hollow place that is at Lehi, and water came out from it. And when he drank, his spirit returned, and he revived. Therefore, the name of it was called En Hakor, as it is in Lehi to this day. And he judged Israel in the days of the Philistines 20 years. So God very graciously responded to Samson. He opens up the ground and created a new spring that it notes was there still at the time of the writing of Judges. As I said, this picture of Samson is a picture of unfulfilled potential. As we'll see next week, Samson's life, his ministry, his leadership, it really takes a hard hit. And as we look at these two chapters this morning, we really see the precursors to that fall that we're going to see in chapter 16. And we, we see all the signs as we're reading through the scripture. Right? Signs, they're obvious to us. They're obvious to everyone except Samson. Right? First, we find our man Samson going where he shouldn't have been. Remember, first we saw him there in Timnah, hanging out with the enemy. Now, I'm not suggesting that the people of God have no business interacting with unbelievers, right? We as Christians, as the people of God, we're not called to hide out in compounds out in the woods. We're not called to isolate ourselves. We're not called to insulate ourselves from the world. Right? Jesus, our, our, our ultimate example in Christian living, 
he regularly mixed it up with sinners. He spent time with them. He went to their parties. He, he ministered to them. He met people where they, were, where they were, and he loved them there. But that isn't what Samson is doing, is it? Right? This isn't a ministry-related thing. Samson didn't go down to Timnah to share the gospel. He wasn't there for street evangelism. <clears throat> Samson was there because he liked what the world had to offer him. We also found Samson in the vineyards, another place that Samson had no business being in the Nazarite, right? He was to have nothing to do with wine, with grapes, with raisins, any of that. He was to completely abstain. So we find Samson first regularly going where he wasn't supposed to go. Second, Samson was hanging out with people that he shouldn't have been hanging out with. Samson falls for this Philistine girl. And as we saw, there wasn't really even a connection. It wasn't as though their, their souls connected in deep conversation and they fell in love. It was simply, he thought she was hot. He thought her curves were in all the right places. He thought that she could satisfy his fleshly desires. Now, let me be very bold. Let me be clear on what I believe the Bible teaches regarding the subject of marriage and relationships to unbelievers. This is what the Old Testament law said. Deuteronomy chapter seven, verse one. When the Lord your God brings you into the land you are entering to possess and drives out before you many nations, the Hittites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, seven nations larger and stronger than you. And when the Lord your God has delivered them over to you and you have defeated them, you must destroy them totally. Make no treaty with them and show them no mercy. Do not intermarry with them. Do not give your daughters to their sons, nor take their daughters as your sons. For they will turn your children away from following me to serve other gods. And the Lord's anger will burn against you and will quickly destroy you. In verse six, he says, for you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you out of all the peoples on the face of the earth to be his people, his treasured possession. So the Lord very clearly forbids the Israelites from marrying non-Jews. Why? Was it racial? Right? He didn't want interracial relationships? Of course not. Had nothing to do with that. Had nothing to do with genetics or racial purity or any nonsense like that. It was spiritual. It says, for they will turn your children away from following me to serve other gods. The point that the Lord is making here is that mixing with the world in that way would corrupt the people of God. 
And that was the Lord's concern. The Lord says, look, I've called you. I've chosen you. You're my people. You are my treasured possession. I saved you out of this corrupt world. Don't go back into it. I heard what someone once say, if you take ice cream and manure and mix them together, it doesn't affect the manure, but it totally ruins the ice cream. Sort of the idea, right? Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 14 and 15, and I know you guys are familiar with these verses. Do not be yoked together with unbelievers. For what do righteousness and wickedness have in common? Or what fellowship can light have with darkness? What harmony is there between Christ and Belial? Or what does a believer have in common with an unbeliever? Paul very simply says that we need to be careful in our relationships with unbelievers because we are headed in different directions in life than they are. Believers and unbelievers have different desires. They have different motivations. And even more than that, believers and unbelievers are headed to different eternal destinations. They're on different paths. So it doesn't make sense to be yoked together. Because if you're yoked together, it's hard to go on those different paths, right? In light of that, our relationships, particularly marriage relationships, but I think in our culture, by default, all romantically late relationships, right? Because, you know, dating leads to marriage, right? We need to be careful. We need to view who we date in light of this principle. A believer, it seems according to scripture, a child of God has no business dating an unbeliever or a child of darkness. And some people would say, wow, you know, that's, that's harsh, pastor. That's very judgmental. That's whatever. Well, don't get mad at me. I didn't say it. God said it. Right? It's right here in the word. Take it up with him. So Samson was going places he shouldn't have gone, in relationships that he shouldn't have been in, doing things that he shouldn't have been doing. It seems clear, and again, I think it's, it's an inference, but they're there at this party, this Philistine celebration. There was probably some partying, some drinking going on. And I'm not talking about whether or not Christians should drink. That's not the situation here with Samson. Samson's issue wasn't the alcohol. It's that he was a Nazarite, and he was very specifically commanded not to drink not to consume alcohol. And he broke his vow to the Lord. He broke the Lord's commandment for his life. And that, we'll see, leads to all other sorts of nonsense. Going where he shouldn't go. Being in relationships that he shouldn't be in. Doing things that he shouldn't have done. Is it, in, is it any surprise that in the end of his life, he just ends up a hot mess? And I think the application for us is obvious, isn't it? We as believers need to be careful 
as we're, as we're walking with the Lord, we need to be careful where we walk. We need to be careful how we interact with people. We need to make sure that we're not going places that we shouldn't go. If you struggle with drunkenness, don't go hang out at the bar, right? If you struggle with drug addiction, don't go hang out at your dealer's house. If you struggle with online issues, don't be alone with access to the internet. Second, you need to watch out who you form relationships with. If you're single, don't get caught up with inappropriate relationships with unbelievers because it will lead you astray. It'll pull you in directions that you don't want to go in. Lastly, don't do stupid stuff. It's pretty all-encompassing, isn't it? But it's good advice, right? Don't do stupid stuff. Don't do things that you know you shouldn't be doing. Guys, as believers, we have the Holy Spirit within us, indwelling us, leading us and guiding us into all things, showing us what we should and shouldn't do. Obey that voice of the Holy Spirit. Now look, I don't want you to feel condemned this morning. Maybe convicted if that's what you need, but not condemned. You know, as we close, Samson, frankly, he screws up his life pretty bad, as we're going to see in the next chapter. He messes things up. And not to excuse his poor behavior, but in the end, we find that God redeems Samson's life for his glory. Samson, he ends up repenting. And as he repents, God's spirit comes back upon him. And Samson is restored in a fashion. The Lord uses Samson again. And if you find this morning that you're not where you should be, you've been going places that you shouldn't be going, doing things with people you shouldn't be, doing things you shouldn't be doing, the solution is simple. Repent. Call in the name of the Lord. And then stop. Stop doing stupid stuff and walk with God. Amen? Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. And we thank you for just the practical wisdom we see. And Lord, while it seems simple to stop doing stupid stuff, it's exceedingly difficult without the power of your Holy Spirit. And so we pray that you would just empower each one of us, that you would break the chains that bind us, Lord, that you would break bad habits and habitual sins, that we could find freedom in you, and that we could walk uprightly and justly before you. We pray that in your name, Jesus. Amen.